Welcome to the wicket. Hello and welcome to The Wicket, a podcast from Arab News, looking at the world of cricket locally in the Gulf, regionally across Asia and worldwide. I'm Brian Murgatroyd and with me as ever to pick over events across the globe are Arab News columnist John Pike and Arab News cricket reporter Sebash Hamagain. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Brian. Good day. Hello, John. Hello, Brian. Well, in this episode, we'll be talking about the Gulf region's own major men's T20 tournament, the DP World ILT20, which gets underway on Friday the 19th of January. We look ahead to the ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup in South Africa. We reflect on the careers of two leading Australia players of the past decade, Aaron Finch and Sean Marsh, who've announced their retirements from professional cricket. We talk about the ongoing Afghanistan tour of India and Zimbabwe's tour of Sri Lanka. We chat about Pakistan's men's ongoing T20 series in New Zealand. We discuss another high-profile banning order handed down by the ICC's Anti-Corruption and Security Unit. And we ask John and Sebash for their highlights of the past week in cricket. So, as ever, plenty to get through. Let's get cracking. First up, we're all set for Season 2 of the Gulf region's own major cricketing event, the DP World ILT20. It gets underway on Friday, January the 19th. Six teams, 30 days, 34 matches across three venues, Dubai, Sharjah and Abu Dhabi. The Gulf Giants, led by England's James Vince and coached by Andy Flower, are the champions They beat the Desert Vipers, the franchise of Manchester United shareholder Avram Glazer in last year's final, with the other four sides, MI Emirates, Abu Dhabi Knight Riders, Sharjah Warriors and the Dubai Capitals. There have been some big name arrivals into the league this season, including David Warner, fresh from his test retirement at the Capitals, and Pakistanis Shaheen Shah Afridi, Shadab Khan, Azam Khan and Mohamed Amir at the Desert Vipers. But there looks set to be a lot more comings and goings in comparison to last year as the international calendar rolls on alongside the tournament. And so the league has allowed an expansion of squad sizes and has also brought in the super sub which has already featured in the IPL. John, it's a big season for the ILT20 as the new CEO, David White, the former New Zealand cricket CEO, has said his main priority is large attendances. Isn't he setting himself up for a fall, given that there's no history of big crowds in the UAE because the vast majority of people in the country are there on working visas and so aren't able to just pitch up at the cricket at the drop of a hat? It's a big and ambitious call, for sure. I guess it depends upon what large means and whether it means attendances um, in person at matches. I think it goes a little bit deeper than than you suggest. Um, Last year, all of the taxi drivers who took me to and away from the matches said, who's playing here? They had no knowledge of the tournament, but they said that they're in interest would surge if uh, players from the Indian subcontinent were playing. Of course, uh, there won't be any centrally contracted Indians, but this year there are four Pakistanis, as you mentioned, with the Desert Vipers. It'd be interesting to know if the uh, the Vipers' marketing strategy is seeking to target the Pakistani diaspora. 
This all contrasts a bit with the um, with SA20, which had about seven sellout crowds in 2023 and claimed to have sold 75% of tickets um, across all of the matches. Yes, it's going to be fascinating to see how many people actually turn up for the games in the UAE. But Sebash, this period of the cricket year is an incredibly busy one for T20 tournaments. There's the, the BBL in Australia, the Super Smash in New Zealand. They're reaching a conclusion. The SA20 that John's just mentioned is ongoing. And the Bangladesh Premier League, the BPL, gets going on January the 19th. Does the UAE tournament have the ability to survive and prosper in such a landscape? Well, I think UAE, they have got big names in despite the competition from other leagues. Uh, the organisers, they put up a really good tournament. But going forward, the cricket boards might be reluctant to release players for multiple leagues. Then I think there might be preference from the players themselves to choose the leagues. Uh, for now, I think even with the multiple leagues at the same time, uh, there are limited international commitments for these players and the players will be available. But same might not be the case if boards have international series lined up. And with the fact that ILT20 has huge number of overseas players, I think the quality of players uh, might decrease in coming years. Well, John, something else to bear in mind is that the Pakistan Super League have announced their dates for this year and the tournament's opening night is the same night as the ILT20 final, February the 17th. Well, that will surely mean some players, and especially some of the Pakistanis recruited by ILT20, could miss the business end of the tournament. How much of a blow would that be? Well, if the Desert Vipers reach the final, it's likely to be a massive blow. And it all goes to further illustrate the intertwining of the various franchise leagues in terms of both dates and players, whether it indicates a need to compromise or whether it's a matter of uh, letting the devil take the hindmost, to let the market sort itself out, um, is something that's going to be coming to a head, I think, in the next couple of years. Don't forget, the finals of the, the Big Bash is going to be hit by the loss of seven players to ILT20. Strikers losing Overton, Lynn and Hose. Brisbane Heat will lose Sam Billings and Colin Munro. And the Sixers, of course, um, lose James Vince. Well, talking of the Pakistanis that we've mentioned already, Sebash, several of them aren't available for the start of the tournament either, as Pakistan is on tour in New Zealand. All the same, is their inclusion, do you think, in this year's event, albeit likely for a short period, a real silver bullet to success the league is looking for? Well, these players are demand all over the world. If you see uh, the foreign leagues, if not for India-Pakistan relations, I think these players would be in high demand in the IPL too. They fit this format so well and the franchise opt to have these players even for a shorter period because they bring in the numbers in crowd as well. And even for the social media numbers, I think these uh, Pakistani players are good. Uh, you get performance from them as well as the crowd. And this ultimately will help in promotion of the league as well. So I think uh, there's a lot of positives to have to have for having them even for a shorter period and that's what the teams are doing. John, what about the major innovation for Season 2, the introduction of the Super Sub? Is it just tinkering? Tinkering for the sake of tinkering, or, or is there value in such a change? What we do know is that each team has the option to substitute one player at any stage of the match after completion of the first over of the innings. Obviously, a player who's been substituted can't participate in the remaining part of the match. I mean, it doesn't fit with you know, traditional views of the game. This is a new world. It provides a tactical tweak for the captain and coach to uh, to decide on. And it will probably appeal as well to the betting community, no doubt trying to best guess who will be subbed. Yes, it's going to certainly bring some fascinating permutations to the matches to come. Sebash, there's the expansion of squad lists as well, above and beyond the salary cap, with each squad allowed two wildcard picks 
Is this a necessary change, given the fact players will be coming and going during the season? Certainly, Brian. I think this will help the teams to look at their schedule and act accordingly. You can be expecting big-name players to play full tournament with international commitments and their own domestically coming up. I think uh, this will leave the team with juggling options, play along with the player schedule. And the fact that nine overseas players are likely to be in the eleven, I think uh, you need to have long list of players uh, with mainly looking at their schedule itself. So come on then, uh, gentlemen, let's have your predictions for Season 2 of the DP World ILT20. Who will win and why? Sebash, first of all? I think uh, Desert Vipers will do better than last season and win the title. Uh, I'm excited to see Ali Nasir, uh, who's been an exciting prospect for UAE cricket. And they've got good names, Season T20 players like one in Dwasaranga, just coming off back from the lengthy injury. He performed well in that game as well. So I think uh, Desert Vipers are the one to watch. And John? It looks like the, the two best squads including coaches and management, are the Golf Giants and Desert Vipers. The Capitals have strengthened with Warner. But I think the real issue, as we've already mentioned, is with the comings and goings, changing team makeup, large squads, and the extent to which those break momentum and unity. I think um, Golf Giants and the Vipers managed that better in 2023. I'm sure that the Vipers will be eager to make amends. If the Pakistanis perform and stay to the end, I'll go with the Vipers. If not, I'll go with the Giants. There we are then. The DP World ILT20 gets underway on Friday the 19th of January, and I'm sure we'll be discussing it uh, plenty more. Well, there's definitely a preview element to this week's show as getting underway on the same day as the DP World ILT20 is the 15th edition of the ICC Under-19 Men's Cricket World Cup. The event is taking place in South Africa after it was shifted there at the 11th hour following original host Sri Lanka's suspension by the ICC. It involves 16 teams, five venues and 48 matches with the final in Benoni on the 11th of February. There are four groups initially. Group A has defending champions India, plus Asia Cup winners Bangladesh, as well as Ireland and the USA. Group B features Scotland, South Africa, the West Indies and England. Group C has Zimbabwe, Namibia, Australia and Sri Lanka. And Group D includes Pakistan, Afghanistan, New Zealand and Nepal. John, is this one of the treats of the calendar every two years for you, the chance to to try and spot new talent, players that will feature at senior level in years to come? It certainly is. I did a bit of reminiscing and looked at the 2010 edition. For England, Azim Rafiq was captain. In his charge were Ben Stokes, Joe Root, Josh Butler and James Vince, all of whom, of course, went on to play for the senior side. Three of those with um, great distinction. And there are other examples. Um, 2006, I looked, and Australia's team contained none other than Aaron Finch. So who to look out for this year? I mean, there are too many, really, but I'm going to focus on Shibli of Bangladesh, who's, of course, a star at the ACC and the 19 Asia Cup, Hamza Sheikh of England, uh, Wayne Mbukaka and Steve Stork of South Africa, uh, Jordan Johnson, West Indies, um, Badaha Ashakil of Scotland, and uh, Harry Dixon of uh, Australia. I'm prepared to be judged after the tournament as to whether I was right or wrong. Yes, there we are. John's got his crystal ball out for us. Uh, once more but of course it isn't just the players uh, we're going to be talking about it's also the venue and uh, the fact that the tournament is now in South Africa it was moved from Sri Lanka Sabash 
How much does that change of country affect the whole dynamic of the tournament? I think this will affect the dynamics, uh, in, including the team formation as well. Uh, considering the reputation of surfaces in play, I think teams from subcontinent, including Nepal, will find it hard. I think Sena countries will be happy with their history of having better pace attack, uh, while spin-heavy teams like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, even Nepal will struggle in this surface. And uh, good thing for these Asian teams is they had a preparation with the, the with this kind of surface in the Asia Cup. But playing in South Africa, I think it's a whole new battle. John, the beauty of this tournament is that no side's ever knocked out, as if a team fails to finish in the top two of its group and therefore misses progress to the quarterfinals, it still plays on for the minor places. That's a great trait of this event, isn't it? Just giving exposure and experience experience to these young cricketers? Yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it. I think for the associates, it doesn't enable them to continue to learn and, and play and, and also learn about opponents. I'm not sure how it fits with the top sides who may be sort of rather disappointed not to have progressed any further. Well, Sebastian, it's an exciting time for Nepal cricket. I know you weren't feeling very positive about uh, Nepal's chances after it was humbled in the Asia Cup at the back end of last year. Are you feeling any more optimistic now? Well, the Asia Cup was a wake-up call for us on what we expect in South Africa. Uh, the team really struggled with pace uh, back in UAE. And since then, we have lost our strike bowler in Hemant Thami too. So on paper, it is not looking good. Uh, there are individuals who are eyeing for a senior team spot and soon to be formed Nepal A team as well. So I think the players like Dev and Deepes have to step up and show their calibre. Well, John, it's a notoriously difficult tournament to predict, given there's only a limited number of age group internationals played across the world and as it only happens once every two years, the playing groups will change almost wholesale between editions. What's your gut feeling about this edition and uh, who might win? We saw that both uh, India and Pakistan lost in the semis of the Asia edition, so uh, they're not invincible. It's difficult to bet against India. I'm sure they'll be motivated and they've had some pretty intense preparations for the event. I'm inclined to think that South Africa could spring a surprise, um, given the, the groundswell of support for cricket in the country at the moment through SA20. Well, Sebastian, Asia has ruled the roost over the past few editions. India have won this tournament in 2018 and 2022. Bangladesh won it when it was played in South Africa in 2020. And Bangladesh won that Asia Cup in the UAE in December. Is that where we should be looking for the winner again? India and Bangladesh, they have history of having a good tournament. And this time, it's no different with bunch of good players. Even Pakistan, with an excellent pace attack, could be a team to watch. The difference is the grassroots cricket in this region has flourished in recent years. And uh, we've seen huge rise in huge tournaments from the ACC at, as well. So if you look at the youth setup, I think it's tough in countries like England and uh, Australia to have players playing every day uh, with the school and all. But uh, in the Asian region, we see players uh, leaving school and giving everything for cricket. And I think uh, the result has come from that. If you look at the history as well, India and Bangladesh in recent years, I think the players have put in their all and got the results. Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to this tournament and I'm sure there'll be plenty more to chat about here at the wicket. Well, as we record this podcast, the first test between Australia and the West Indies is getting underway in Adelaide, first of two matches in that series. There's plenty of interest around the match and we'll discuss it in detail in our next episode. But in the meantime, we thought it would be worth reflecting on the retirements from professional cricket of two players who featured heavily for Australia over the past decade or more, Aaron Finch and Sean Marsh. Both players have called it a day amidst an unsuccessful Big Bash League campaign with the Melbourne Renegades, and both players will leave significant holes. 
Finch's legacy is as one of the greatest T20 batters of all time. He stands seventh in the list of all-time run scorers in the format, and uh, one of 10 players, in fact, to have topped 10,000 runs. And uh, he's got two of the three highest scores in T20Is, twice going past 150. He's also a 50-over Cricket World Cup winner, part of the side that won that tournament in Australia and New Zealand, and he's captained Australia in both white ball formats. He played five tests over the course of three months in late 2018, during the period when David Warner was suspended, but that was never his forte. White ball batting most assuredly was, and he's got a record many would be proud of. As for Marsh, well, there'll be plenty who will regard him as an unfulfilled talent, despite a career that featured more than 12,000 first-class runs and 1,300s at international level. He scored 100 on test debut against Sri Lanka in Sri Lanka in 2011, but never really held a place in Australia's lineup over a prolonged period of time. Injuries and ill fortune didn't always help him either. In 2019, for example, he was part of Australia's Cricket World Cup squad when he broke his wrist, an injury that scuppered any hope of him getting on the Ashes tour that followed. And in December 2014, he was run out for 99 in a test against India in Melbourne. Domestically, Marsh has been a colossus across the formats as part of the Western Australia side that won the Sheffield Shield most recently last season. And he was a regular member of an outstanding Perth Scorchers team that did so well in the Big Bash League under Justin Langer before he shifted to the Renegades, where even this season, he's been one of the side's top batters aged 40. So Finch and Marsh on their way. John, let's start with Aaron Finch. How do you think he will be viewed? How will he be remembered? I think with respect and admiration for both his playing abilities and his rough around the edges leadership abilities in which he showed um, significant empathy. He's a bit under the radar from an English viewpoint, although he played for Yorkshire 2014 and 15 and Surrey in 2018. I remember there he scored 117 off 52 balls in a T20 match against Middlesex and 131 not out against Sussex. I think this puts his big hitting reputation into proper perspective. As you say, I think he's going to be best remembered for his T20 exploits, given the short-lived test career. And he's down the list, I think something about 80th, 5,400 runs in ODIs. Of course, his game is Contact with the game remains strong through his broadcasting work, which testifies to his cerebral facilities. Absolutely. Well, Sebastian. Finch was a highly sought-after player in the IPL, very well respected in that form of the game, and in, I guess you could say, the place that counts, India. Yeah, well, he was one to watch in Oxford every time. Uh, he was in demand between the teams, but uh, didn't really prove his price in any of those. Uh, he was too good of a player to not have in the team, but really didn't settle in any of the sides. Skill-wise, I think he has shown what he's capable of with Australia and other leagues, but when it came to IPL franchises, I think we only... Got to see bits and pieces of him. So it's got it that he couldn't prove himself in the IPL, but I think uh, his name uh, is his name himself is big enough uh, to get that demand. John, let's talk about Sean Marsh now. In an age of players specialising in white ball or red ball cricket, he was actually a player who seemed able to cross that divide and be effective in both forms. Yes, he played 38 tests, um, 73 ODIs and 15 T20s for Australia, so a bit of a mixed bag. You mentioned that he didn't get a prolonged run in the, in the teams for various reasons. And perhaps his finest feats were the two centuries against England in the 
2017-18 home ashes series, particularly the one at Sydney, which also saw his brother Mitch score a century in the, in the same innings when they were together at the crease. And nearly, I think one of them nearly got run out in the celebrations. He was an outstanding performer for Western Australia in the scorches, as you said. Third highest run scorer for Western Australia. Debuted way back in 2000-2001. And it seems that he's one of those players who's universally liked and admired in the game. No doubt helped by his classical technique and stroke play. Absolutely. And uh, let's remember, of course, that uh, he and Mitch are the uh, sons of Jeff Marsh, who won the World Cup with Australia in 1987. Sebash, Sean Marsh averaged 34 in tests. Why do you think he failed to establish himself as one of the first picks in the uh, Australian lineup? Uh, he played IPL before he was capped by Australia, so I think that tells how talented he was even before he was spotted by the national selectors. Also, I think uh, he was unlucky to be in the same time frame as David Warner. I think Warner came into the side from nowhere and cemented the place in all formats. Marsh could have had that spot if he had delivered when he got the chances, but it uh, never really came. Sean Marsh then and Aaron Finch, gone but not forgotten. Let's talk now about Sri Lanka against Zimbabwe. We spoke about the first two one-day internationals of the three-match series between the two sides in the previous podcast. And after only narrowly winning match two by two wickets, Sri Lanka then proceeded to wipe the floor with Zimbabwe in the final match in the longer white ball format as Wanindu Hasaranga, on his comeback match after injury, took seven for 19 as Zimbabwe were bowled out for 96 to lose by eight wickets in a rain-affected game. Two matches in the three-game T20I series have been completed at the time of recording. In match one, veteran former captain Angelo Matthews, recalled to the side after a lengthy absence, made 46 from 38 balls as Sri Lanka sneaked home by three wickets, having been 83 for six at one stage, chasing 144. But in match two, Zimbabwe won a thriller by four wickets with a ball in hand as Luke Jongwe and Clive Madande added 35 in just 13 balls to get their side across the line, chasing 174. Earlier, Matthews had done it again with 66 not out from 51 balls, while Charith Asalanka scored 69. Sebash, once again in the first T20I, as was the case in the second One Day International, Zimbabwe squandered a winning position. With their levels of performance, they've been very erratic so far. Is that just one of the things that a side has to go through to develop, as the Dutch did in the World Cup Super League before it blossomed in the World Cup qualifier? and to an extent, uh, the Cricket World Cup that followed. That uh, erratic, up-and-down performance level, they just can't seem to find a degree of consistency, can they? Yeah, I think they held on and won in the second game, but uh, we saw a glimpse of what happened in the previous game in this one too. I think uh, Sri Lanka once were 27-4 for four and really reeling under pressure, but uh, Zimbabwe, I think they couldn't capitalise that one. I think they should really get the better of their nerves in this position. Uh, credit to Zongwe that Lucky Noble and drop in the last over helped the game get on their way. But I think, as I've been saying, they have individuals to perform. It's just the balance they're struggling for. And the captain, Sikandar Raza, also said that these, these are the matches they should be winning to steady their ship ahead. They've been uh, performing, they've get, been getting close matches, but uh, it's really the end point, uh, the pressure situation that they have not been able to handle. And I think... Uh, the, the last game, the second ODI, second T20I is a, is a symbol that uh, they'll do better from now. 
John, what about Angelo Matthews back in the T20I side after three years and straight away making a contribution, but then having a swipe at past selectors for what he called agendas that he believed kept him out of the side. One thing's for sure, he now appears to be back on the radar for the T20 World Cup in the Caribbean and the USA, though. But, uh, well, Angelo Matthews back and certainly back with a bang. Yeah, it's always been a, a puzzle and, and a disappointment to me that um, Angelo's been left out of white ball cricket for Sri Lanka in recent years. But this is the politics of cricket in Sri Lanka. As you mentioned, the indications are that he's in the current selector's plans for the T20 World Cup. Looks as if his bowling might have been an issue previously. He's used to bowling in the power play, but injuries have uh, curtailed his bowling. But uh, recently he's been, as he pointed out himself, been bowling in the Lanka Premier League and domestic T20 competition. So it looks like he'll be able to contribute a a few overs um, to the team and free up a space for a specialist batter or bowler. Well, we'll wrap up the Zimbabwe-Sri Lanka tour as a whole in our next episode. At the time of recording, India are 2-0 up on Afghanistan in a three-match men's T20i series. We'll cover off the final match of that series in our next show. But from those first two games... Both comfortable India wins in Mahali, where they chased 159 with 15 balls to spare, and Indore, where they chased 173 with uh, a remarkable 26 balls in hand. Sebash, did you spot any trends in the India lineup? Well, I think they're still trying to get that balance in the batting order, especially the top one. The bowling lineup looks good and has been the same. They already have a finisher in, in place of Rinku, but... Uh, Wicketkeeper Jitesh hasn't made the opportunity count, so I think that place is up for grabs. Uh, KL Rahul may be the answer to all this, but uh, will he be able to open? I personally would love to see San Kisan in that mix. Uh, but big, big question for the selection unit here is, with all these matches, they still have IPL to come. And can these pin players continue the form or will there be rise to someone else? I think a lot of answers is in the waiting. But for now, I think they, they've got to cement that top-order batting. John, those first two games were significant losses for Afghanistan in terms of the margins, with plenty left in the tank for India. Should Afghanistan be concerned, or is it simply a case of recognising the fact they're playing with one hand behind their backs in the absence of Rashid Khan as he recovers from back surgery? I don't think it can be pinned entirely on on Khan. Afghanistan played with one hand uh, tied behind the back for a long time for all sorts of other factors. I think at the moment, um, India are just too strong at this stage. Pakistan are in the midst of a T20i series in New Zealand with both teams preparing for the T20 World Cup. And so far, it's been very hard work for the touring side. In all three matches played so far, New Zealand have posted a big score on the board, batting first, creating scoreboard pressure, and Pakistan have eventually caved in in the face of that. In the third of the games in Dunedin, Finn Allen made a spectacular 137 from just 62 balls, the highest score by a New Zealand men's batter in the international format. That included an incredible 16 sixes as well, the joint most by a men's batter in T20Is, along with Hazratullah Zazai of Afghanistan against Ireland five years ago. There have been plenty of talking points thus far, and one of them, John, is more injury woe for Kane Williamson, 
after his long-term knee injury before the Cricket World Cup, then his broken thumb during it, now he's been sidelined with a hamstring injury. And the irony of that is that uh, it came in match two when it had already been announced that he'd missed game three to rest his knee. Now he's going to miss the whole series. Is it just bad luck uh, and coincidence, John, or is it time simply catching up with Kane Williamson now? Sadly, it may be the latter, as it, uh, these injuries seem to be happening more frequently. Although the, the thumb it was a freak accident, both he and, and New Zealand cricket know that his body needs careful management. And I do hope they get it right for one of the world's best players. Sebash Barbar Azam, another fine player. He's returned to form with 57, 66 and 58 in that T20i series. But it hasn't actually stopped speculation about his place in the side, remarkably, following his fallow period in the Cricket World Cup and the Australia Test Tour that followed. Uh, it's amazing how uh, this chat seems to have developed. Well, he has stepped up with the bat. Uh, three fifties in three matches is uh, a remar remarkable batting. But uh, Pakistan lost all through three matches. Uh, as long as these innings are not winning knocks, I think people will have continue raising questions uh, against him. Uh, it is a good sign that he is amongst the runs now. But for the reputation he has attained through these years, I think he should be leading the team to win. Uh, even though he is not the captain at the moment, I feel he's, he still has a lot of responsibility to get that batting unit on track. And John Azam Khan, he struggled to recreate his stellar batting form in franchise competitions on the international stage. He certainly has the talent, as his T20 record shows. He's hit over 100 sixes in the format. But is it nerves, execution, or, or simply the fact there are more good bowlers at this level that has meant he's not fired? Uh, for me, it seems that his temperament and attitude needs working on. Despite losing weight, some things he, he needs to do more about his diet and, and fitness. He seems really totally unconcerned um, about that. Maybe that just that 20 overs is the limit of his focus. It'd be interesting to know what his dad, Moin Khan, actually thinks about it all. Subash, what about Shaheen Shah Afridi as captain? In every match so far, New Zealand have got away to flying starts, never to be caught. Is there anything that the captain could have done differently? I think science still needs to have a time in this uh, scenario. The results have not gone their way. But Pakistan just can't look for options right now. I think uh, they've opted him and they should stick to him at the moment. If he had not been opened, I think Rizwan could have been a better option until the World Cup. But uh, they wanted to build the team for future. And now that they've opted him, I think they should stick to him. Stripping off captaincy from him would be a huge blow for his mindset and mentality as well. So I think uh, they should stick to him and maybe ask the senior players to assist him in the st starting days. Well, this series, New Zealand against Pakistan, goes on until January the 21st and we'll wrap it all up on the next episode of The Wicket. Former Bangladesh all-rounder Nasser Hussain has been banned for two years by the ICC after an investigation by its Anti-Corruption and Security Unit following the Abu Dhabi T10 in 2021. The all-rounder pleaded guilty to three charges, that he received a phone as a gift, that he was then approached via that phone, and then that he didn't fully cooperate with an investigation into the matter. Six months of that two-year ban has been suspended, but it still puts a big question mark over his career. He's 32. He hasn't played international cricket since 2018. John, 
after the banning of Marlon Samuels late last year. Is this an example of the ICC showing it's got teeth in this sort of matter? Or is NASA simply, like the already retired Samuels, simply low-hanging fruit? It looks a bit like the latter, or even worse. I mean, as you mentioned, Hussein accepted an iPhone 2 on which he would receive messages. Seven other cricketers were charged, along with two co-owners and two members of the coaching staff of the Pune Devils. What's happened to them in all of this? Why is Hussein singled out? It doesn't seem to add up at this stage to me. We know that betting in and on and around cricket is rife. Should we be surprised if individuals get caught out for what seem like relatively small offences? Yes, it'll be fascinating to see if there's anything that comes out from the ICC about those other individuals who were originally named in the investigation. But, Sebastian, in the meantime, it's a crying shame, isn't it, whatever your view about what happened, because NASA has been a talented all-rounder with test and one-day international hundreds, more than a 1,000 runs in both those formats, and someone able to bowl seam and off-spin. Uh, you just get the feeling he would have been much more of a success in this era when he played most of his international cricket, when Bangladesh was still very much the whipping boys of international cricket. Certainly, I think with Bangladesh now getting results in our tops as well, his involvement would have helped for sure. And not just for the team, I think there are a lot of franchise league looking for this profile of players and the skill set he acquires. But I think with the guilt he has been charged, I think there's no place for such thing in the beautiful game. And he'll be missed for Bangladesh cricket, a talent that went without performance. Finally, something we started in the last episode, a look back at one cricketing highlight from the past seven days. What caught your attention, uh, gentlemen? Sebastian, first of all? Yeah, I think uh, it has to be from Nepal. We had our domestic uh, Premier Tournament, the Prime Minister Cup, had just begun this week and we have had four centuries in the first four days. I think uh, the TU cricket ground has been a batting paradise in the internationals and the same has continued in the domestic circuit too. So excited to see this three-week-long tournament going forward. Well, that's good news coming out of Nepal. John, what's tickled your fancy? Well, it's something that hasn't tickled my fancy, to be slightly contrary. It's the um, news that Colin Graves is likely to take over again at, uh, at Yorkshire. Uh, I think um, it doesn't look like a, a great step forward unless you're from Yorkshire, I guess. Mentioning this because I think what it's likely to be is a sort of seminal moment in a reshaping of uh, ownership of English county cricket clubs. Um, Graves is on record as saying that maybe he wants to change Yorkshire Members Club to a, to a PLC in order to invite inward investment. This is a time when English cricket is, is going to be looking at a different ownership model and, and a structure. So I just wanted to sort of highlight that here because uh, I think it's, um, it's um, I'm making a bit of a prediction. Well, it's certainly uh, been a very much talked about uh, issue, that one, over the last week or so in the UK and elsewhere. And I'm sure it'll be talked about now for... Uh, well, a fair amount of time to come with Colin Graves coming back uh, at the helm of Yorkshire Candy Cricket Club. That's uh, all for us here at The Wicket. We'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on what you've heard wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd along with John Pike and Sebastian again saying thanks so much for listening and we look forward to your company next time. <laughs>